This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dungeon Master's Handbook. I'm Michael, Chicago Wiz, and I'm really glad you're here with me. This episode, we're going to talk about how I've made AD&D my own, if you will, for the campaign that I run. I'm going to talk about my house rules and changes that I've made to the rules as written to where I like to call it my AD&D light sort of game. Um, there's a lot to cover here. I'm going to try and do it as quickly as I can, and uh, hopefully uh, by the end you will have an idea of some of the ways I really personalized the game to run it the way I want to. I'm going to talk about three big changes that I made. I made a somewhat of a big change to the combat mechanic. Uh, not as big in terms of what you might think, but it's still different than Thaco or looking at charts. I'm going to talk about the combat sequence, and then I'm going to talk about advancement, how I do advancement, gaining levels in my campaign. I'm going to talk about three smaller changes, encumbrance, introducing the concept of counter spells, and how alignment is different in my campaign. And then finally, I'm going to wrap it up with three of the fun changes that, that I did that I like, um, how paladins work, a rule called shattered shields, and finally ye old important D30 rule. All right, so let's get started. Uh, the biggest change probably when I introduce people in my campaign is showing them the combat mechanic. It is called Target 20. Now, that's not my name. Uh, that's the name that Daniel Collins, who writes Delta's OD&D blog, gave to it. Um, if you remember from last episode when I talked about mass combat, uh, Daniel Collins is a statistician and also quite the avid original Dungeons & Dragons DM and player. And uh, he's come up with a lot of things that I like, and Target 20 was one of them. His concept is this. Rather than trying to do additions and subtractions and looking at charts and stuff, just convert everything down to simple addition arithmetic. And so what he came up with is the idea of you take your dice roll, you roll your dice. Uh, let's get a let's get a d20 out. <clears throat> you roll your dice, and I got a 12. Now let's say I'm a third level fighter, so I'm going to add plus three to that roll because I'm a third level fighter. So now I've got a 15. Now we're going to add the armor class of the creature that I'm facing, and let's say it's a slobbering goblin. Goblins have an AC of 7. So right now I'm at a 22. And then let's say that there's, you know, some other modifier there. Let's say maybe I've got a plus 1 because, uh, uh, I don't know. Let's just say I've got a plus 1. So now I've got a 23. In the target 20, if you roll higher or you score higher than a 20, it's a hit. So in this case, because I rolled a 12, because I'm a plus 3 level, because the monster is a AC of 7 and I got my magical plus 1 from somewhere, I've rolled high enough to score higher than 20 and so I would have hit that goblin and then you roll, roll for damage normally. 
Now the level bonuses come from the different classes. So for fighters and monsters, you get a plus one per level or hit die. So um, if you're facing a six hit die creature, when they roll to hit, then, and I rolled a 16, then I would add a plus six to that and they've already got a 22. So unless the, uh, the hapless PC has an armor class of negative two or better, they've been hit. Um, clerics and thieves don't get that plus one per level. They advance a little bit more slowly. They get a plus one for about every one and a half levels, give or take. Um, at the end of this program, um, or actually on the uh, description of the uh, program and on the website, I'll put a link to my uh, house rules document so you can see the specific levels and how they advance. Mages and illusionists, they only get a plus one for about every two and a half levels. So clerics and thieves would start off with a plus one. They don't go to a plus two until to hit until they get to about level three. For mages, they start off with a plus zero. They're not going to get a plus one to hit until about level two or so. Now, statistically, this is equivalent to Thacko and the charts. So why not use the charts? Because in the middle of combat, I don't like to have to think about Thacko with the subtraction and all of that, and I don't like to look up charts. When I roll a die, and I, I rolled an 18, um, I can instantly just add in my head, AC of monster, hit die of creature, Boom, done. Yep, you've hit. No, you haven't. And it just flows very quickly for me. I really like it. It works. I encourage you to check it out if you are like me and don't like charts. Next big change is combat sequence. Segments? We don't need no stinking segments. I just did not like the way that AD&D combat worked. Um, I like a lot of elements of it, but for me, I wanted to go to something that was a little bit more static, i.e. easier to figure out and faster to implement. So as I was kind of casting about figuring out how I was going to run this campaign and trying different things, I ran into a combat sequence written by a gentleman named Philotomy. Philotomy, a long time ago, back when the... Uh, OSR kind of blew up in the blogs around 2008-2009. He had a very popular resource blog for, again, original Dungeons and Dragons called Philotomy's Musings. And in that, he had come up with a sequence for combat, simplified or advanced, that seemed to fit in really well with advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which kind of figures because AD&D was a growth of OD&D, and so using the more advanced sequence seemed to work. The sequence runs like this. You have your initiative. You might have a surprise there. Um, then you have a spells and missiles phase. Then you do half movement in initiative order, so PCs first, then monsters, or vice versa. Then you have more missiles and spells for those people who are casting spells that, uh, you know, are going to take a little longer. That spell may not have gone off in that first phase. It may go off now. Uh, then you complete your final half of your movement. You have another missiles and spells phase, because remember, mages can throw three darts around. Uh, or if you've been casting a... a uh, 
higher level spell or reading from a scroll, that, sc that spell may take effect now. And then you have melee. Once I got this memorized, it flowed really quickly, bam, 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 to where I can do it in my sleep. And the nice thing is, is you get some twists with initiative, with, <clears throat> excuse me, how spells work that they may not go off instantly. They may take a little time to cast, um, but we're not worried about segments and we're not worried about weapon speed or anything of that nature. Um, but this does allow for some nice tactical considerations. Now, I will have to take back about weapon speed because I've been considering adding something to where if we tie for initiative, then the weapon speed will actually come into play. I thought about maybe grouping weapons into fast weapons, like, you know, small things like daggers and short swords, clubs, fists, natural attacks, you know, things like that. Um, then normal weapons, which would be your typical one-handed weapons, and then slow weapons, which would be either two-handed weapons or extremely heavy weapons. Uh, maybe like a flail would be slow. Um, and then you would have that broken up. A little bit more complex. I'm not quite sure I like this yet. Uh, I'm just kicking it around right now. We'll see what happens. All right, so I've covered combat mechanics, combat sequence. Now I'm going to cover how advancement is different in my game than versus Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Um, we only meet once a month. Um, just the way schedules work out and time works out. And... Trying to meet once a month and doing the standard, typical AD&D advancement just really, for me, wasn't working out. Uh, it was taking forever for people to go from first level to second level with calculating uh, XP with gold and with monsters. It just wasn't working. So I went back, and you might hear a constant theme here, to original Dungeons & Dragons. In the original 1974 version, you were awarded 100 experience points for every hit die of your opponent. I liked that, because then it made the idea of facing a few orcs, rather than being a handful of XP, it might actually be worth something now. Um, I do take into account if the creature has magical or special abilities, and I might add a hit die or two, uh, depending. But the average effect is that even though we meet once a month, we still see a little bit faster development than uh, we might if we were using the uh, the old way. I still do award one gold piece for, or one experience point per gold piece. Um, so the players are definitely always looking out for the treasure because as they found out, not only will I award experience for gold, I also award experience for the magical items that they find. Beings that magic is rare in my campaign, uh, these are highly sought after. So I also award experience for exploration. If you are the first people to have gone into the gloomy depths of the monastery and no one else has made it there or ever been there before or since it was abandoned, guess what? You get experience for that. And I try to figure it on the basis of how would a first level PC benefit from this. So if I was a first level PC and I went into this fearsome dungeon where, you know, death was around every corner and it was, you know, had a great myth and reputation for being haunted and I survived and came out and the townspeople found out, they'd probably think I was something else. 
So I try to award the XP based on that. You know, if, if a first person would go to, if a first level person would go to second level, uh, based on just surviving that dungeon, then that's the amount of XP that I'll give and divide up and hand out to each player. I also, um, taking a riff off of an old school game, uh, Empire of the Petal Thrones or Tecumel, I also award XP and levels for advancing an organization's goal. Um, in talking with people that used to play with Professor Barker, he quite often would advance people in levels based on the fact that they had done their church or cult or organization some great benefit. I thought that really made a lot of sense. You know, if the idea of XP was to show advancement in becoming and making a name for yourself, well, certainly advancing the goals of your uh, organization would definitely help towards that. So, um, you know, if I'll give you an example, one of my players uh, found a long lost uh, temple of his pagan god. And so I awarded him a level up because of that, because he had increased the, uh, the visibility and the, uh, the power of his organization. All right, so that's the three big things that I did in my campaign that are different from the rules as written. Let's go on to some smaller changes. Encumbrance. Um, I steal from blogs regularly. I love the blogs and the people that do the do-it-yourself stuff, and they come up with all these crazy ideas. One of them was to convert everything to stone because one stone equals 14 pounds. So it got really easy to be able to say, okay, so if you're carrying around this big hefty weapon, that's one stone. If you are carrying around a backpack full of equipment, well, that's probably another stone or two. Um, it made it easier to track because it was smaller numbers. And then it became pretty obvious to me as I did this as to how this worked. Um, it generally works out, you know, like 150 coins. Well, that's another stone and so on. Uh, smaller weapons are about a third of a stone. And it roughly breaks out in terms of armor that if you're wearing armor and you have normal gear, you're going to move about 90 feet around. Uh, chain mail is 60 feet around. Plate is 30 feet around. I'm sorry, turn, not round turn. Um, the strength bonus will reduce that. Another fun rule that I included was called counter spells. Um, do you remember the scene from 1984's Conan the Destroyer, where the evil mage who was pursuing Conan into that uh, strange looking cave where there was a skull whose uh, mouth opened and shut like a door. The heroes ran through, shut the door, and then this mage, you know, he whacked his bracelets together and started casting a spell to raise the door. Then the hero's mage, um, I think his name is Akiro, he sits down and like has this mental magical battle with the mage where they're all grunting and groaning and you know doing things. And then Akira wins this little duel. The evil mage is stunned, the door shuts, and the heroes escape. I love that scene. I think that is one of the few scenes where you see mages in a movie kind of fight each other and interact. And I always thought that that would be neat to include in AD&D. 
Well, based on an old obscure chainmail rule, which did have counter spells, and some ideas that a gentleman from a forum, a gentleman by the name of Dubeers, came up with, I developed this uh, this rule for doing uh, counterspelling. Basically, it works like this. It's for mages and illusionists only. If the, a mage senses that a spell is being cast, he or she can forego their action and attempt to do a counterspell. Based on the difference of levels of the mages and the saving throw, this could enter in mean that uh, the spell has been countered and now the loser either way could suffer very badly from the effects from being stunned, losing a spell, to being thrown insane, uh, all based on saving throw. Um, another change I made was alignment. Um, I don't really get into the nine alignment system. I like the three alignments from the original Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, lawful, being here with society, chaos, might makes right, and neutral, which kind of equates to, man, just leave me alone. I just want to do my thing. Um, I base this concept off of another blogger. You might be sensing a theme here. Um, his name is Jeff Rience of a really amazing blog called Jeff's Game Blog. He has an alignment test, which I really like. If the Norse gods are facing off against the Elder Gods, which side are you on? Are you for Thor and Odin? Are you for Cthulhu and the other nasty gods? Or are you on the side of, man, get me the hell out of Ragnarok? That'll determine what your alignment is in my campaign. All right, let me close it out with three fun changes that I did. Um, paladins. Uh, paladins in my campaign don't have to be just champions of lawful good. Here, they are champions of the religion or the god that they are associated with. Um, the rules and effects for what they get as they advance in levels and what they have to do are based on the deity or the religion that they're following. By and large, I try to stick to roughly comparable effects at comparable levels, but I change it up a little bit so that, uh, you know, if you're following a god of air and light, which one of my, uh, uh, one of my players are, then for fourth level, he got a steed that every so often can actually fly, which he's put to a lot of fun use. Um, another fun change to the rules, shattered shields. So, and this is also based off of a blog post. Um, if you want to negate a wound that you just received, then you can say, I'm allowing my shield to be shattered. If it's a wooden shield, then you lose the effect of the shield. If it's a metal shield, then you really injured your arm and you can't use the shield anymore for, <clears throat> for that combat. Um, it's nice because it, it, it does allow you to, to, uh, you know, take away a hit at the cost of sacrificing some of your armor class. And yes, these rules apply to monsters too. Uh, when, when I let my monsters sacrifice their shields, there's much gnashing of teeth from the PCs when that happens. Um, and then finally, probably the most fun, uh, little rule that I have is the D30 rule. I have a D30, it is right here, and once per game, per character, you can roll the D30. 
You can use it for a saving throw. You can use it to hit. You can even use it for damage. And yes, I've had people roll a 30 once. Uh, and that's when uh, a gentleman used the D30 to throw a Molotov cocktail at an ant a giant antlion. And instead, because he rolled a 30 for damage, I ruled that the effect was pretty much like, you know, the mother of all bombs or a tactical nuke going off. It was pretty glorious. Um, and if you roll a 1 with a D30... That is the worst possible result that I can come up with in my head at the time. But the players love it. I love seeing them do it. It's pretty cool. It's, it's uh, you know, it uh, breaks the heart as much as it helps save people. So uh, it's a fun little thing to do. Um, all my house rules are available on the web. I'm going to put a link to the house rules in the podcast description, um, both on SoundCloud and on WordPress, which I hope you are checking both out. And, uh, you know, you can take a look. I've got a lot of other little small rules and how I handle things like scrolls and uh, uh, poisons and, and other little situations that have come up uh, during my nine-year campaign. Um, and tell me what you think about it. I'd love to hear from you. And I'd also love to hear if you try any of these rules, how it works out for you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast. Uh, the link or the, uh, the podcast itself would really love to hear from more people and let me know what you think and your comments and suggestions. Okay, until next time, game on.